This is Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. The N-words in our plans series are life application, and this one is no different. But I have to tell you, this one's going to meddle a little bit. As a matter of fact, it's been meddling with me for a few weeks. Now it's your turn to join me. I have a question of whether or not I'm in control of my life or God is. And maybe you struggle with that question as well. And here's how you might figure that out. If I were to ask you this question, what areas of your life do you have control or power over? What would you say? Would you say your work, the choices you make, the decisions that you make, your beliefs, maybe your thoughts, who you love and don't love? Maybe, huh? Well, as I began to wrestle with that question, a friend of mine answered that question like this. When I gave Jesus control, I gave Him everything. I'm not taking it back. I have control over nothing. It's all His. And I thought, oh, that's a pretty good answer. It wasn't my answer. <laughs> I had a different answer. I said, sometimes I make my own choices and decisions and... Um, what I want to think about and things like that. And I realize if I'm choosing that, then God isn't. That's not so good. So who is in control of your life? What areas do you have control over? Well, let me ask this a little differently. You see, I've asked this question to a lot of people over the uh, last few weeks and all the answers when they talk about control are things and, and ideas and thoughts. You know, it could be uh, whether I go to work or not, uh, if I listen to my boss and do what he says or if I don't, um, how I spend my money, all these different things, right? Well, I want to challenge you that there are some things that you may not have thought of that are out of your control. And one of them is your holiness. Do you control how holy you are? What about who's in control of your relationship with God? Who's in control of your relationship with the Holy Spirit? 
or with Jesus Christ? Who's in control of what you believe? Who's in control of whether or not you accept the Bible as the Word of God or just some of it and you pick and choose? Who's in control of that? Hmm. Different kind of questions, aren't they? Now let me ask this a little differently. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Who's in control of your life? But you have very easier control over them, right? Or does He have it all? Because if you have control over these areas that I've mentioned and others, then those are the areas where you're acting like God in your life. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a startling reality to say, wait a minute, if I'm acting like God in those areas of my life, I better have the heart of God. I better have the mind of Christ, and I better have the love of the Holy Spirit in me that's running these things. Otherwise, I'm in serious trouble running my life in those areas. Because if God doesn't offer those things, then I am. And my ways are not His ways. And my thoughts are not His thoughts. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And His ways are much higher than my ways. And I would venture to guess, without hesitation, the same is true for you. That God's ways and thoughts are higher than yours. Now with that thought in mind... I have to ask you this next thing. And that is, do you think God has in vain said that we need to be holy just like He is? Was that a statement, since we cannot control our level of holiness, that when God says, do it, be holy as I am, and we go, but I can't control that. How is that even remotely fair, right? So how do, you, how do you reconcile that? I had a, a conversation with a friend over the last couple of weeks about that very verse that says that's in 1 Peter chapter 1. Mm-hmm. And it says it actually twice in two different ways. And he says, up on the screen for you, but as He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And your behavior. Now look at the next verse. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Mm-hmm. Now, in some translations, the word is, instead of holy, it's perfect. Be perfect, as I am perfect, says God. And when I had the conversation, my friend that read it and said, I understand this word can also mean perfect, and nobody's perfect. How can I be perfect? God has asked me to do something I can't do. And I kind of smiled because I know what word is there is translated as perfect and uh, holy. And the word is teleos. And the word teleos means, not only does it mean holy, it can also mean complete. It can mean perfect. And it can mean mature. So, can we be mature? Can you grow up a little with God? Can we mature with Jesus? Do we stay at the same level or do we get more and more growth in grace? More and more, right? Well, if you think about this for a moment, the word immature means to mature to the extent that you can right now. There's a certain level of maturity you expect from a four-year-old that you expect a greater sense of maturity from a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old. Different levels, right? 
And so we all have a level of maturity we each one can attain, and it's different for each person. However, someone who's a baby in Christ and someone who's uh, 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 died in a little Bible thumper and been in Christ forever looks at people who are new in Christ and says, you ought to not be doing that. But they're not matured yet. They're still learning. The Holy Spirit still has a lot more work to do in them because they're brand new. The person who the Holy Spirit's been working on apparently hasn't been working on that part of that person says, you don't need to judge a guy and throw a log in his eye. Or a speck either. But if you understand that we as believers in Jesus Christ are in grace working to mature to the level we can. That's why different people have different gifts. And we mature in those gifts. If someone is good at speaking, it doesn't mean, okay, they should speak all the time. It means they should learn to do it better for God's glory. Someone sings, they should practice and get better and do it for God's glory. If they evangelize, if they've got the gift of healing or whatever the gift is, they continue to hone and find craft that gift for the glory of God. This is called maturing. So it says to be maturing, as God says, as I am mature as I'll ever be. <laughs> but you should strive to be as mature as you can right now because that's how God is. Does that make a little more sense? Now here's the thing. Here's where we get caught up in in the United States and in the Western culture is the word here, it says, be holy, for I am holy. It doesn't say to do holy. You're not a human doing. You're a human being. It says, be holy. Being holy is a state or of character or of nature, not of a doing. You can't go out and act holy. Holy is a descriptive term of something that is already holy. Something that is mature doesn't go, now go out and mature. <laughs> it doesn't make as much sense, does it? That's like saying, go act complete. Go act um, perfect. You, you can act it, but it doesn't work. But to be mature as you can be right now is a state of being. And so often we take Christianity and try to make it a state of doing. Well, they didn't do that right. Or they weren't doing this right. Or this person sinned over there. But are they holy? Well, they couldn't be holy because they're doing sin. And this is where we get all tripped up. <coughs> Comparing apples to oranges. And we just can't quite do it. I once had a, a class in uh, clinical pastoral education. And uh, I got stuck on that do word versus be because I was doing ministry in my early 20s. And he said, you can't do ministry. You can either be a minister and minister or do a ministry and, and be frustrated because you're doing it out of your own strength. Here's the difference. You can do something, but you're doing it out of your own strength. But if you're already that, you're just being who you are and it comes out of you. If you are a loving person, you don't have to make yourself love somebody. But if you don't love people, you've got to make yourself love somebody. If your heart isn't a forgiving heart, you actually have to make yourself forgive somebody. But if you have a forgiving heart, you're more than willing to because you are a forgiving person. Do you see the difference here between doing and being? 
A singer can open up and sing. Me, I can open up and make a joyful noise. You understand? I can work at singing, but I'm not really being a singer. I'm just a person who likes to sing, whether it's pleasant or not. Just a little. So there are a lot of different ways to look at that. Um, as a pastor, wouldn't it be absolutely horrible if you heard the same sermon every week? I know a pastor did that for three straight weeks. When he said they, they said it was a good sermon, so I kept preaching it. <laughs> he said the third Sunday, he, they asked him why, uh, why he kept preaching the same one. He said it was good, and he hadn't done it yet, so I'm going to keep doing it. Because you keep doing that same thing, I'm going to keep doing this same thing. And all of a sudden they said, well, Pastor, we like it. You do what you need to do. <laughs> but what I'm saying, though, is if it was the same sermon every week and the same level of thought, you'd be going, doesn't this guy get any more mature? Doesn't he have a depth? Doesn't he have a relationship with God that there's a whole bunch more than just go to church and pray? Isn't there more to Christian life than that? But that's all he says. I used to go to a church, um, Pastor no longer with us, but he had four sermons. And depending on which Sunday of the month it was, he had one of those four sermons. Now you say sometimes there's fifth Sunday of the month, like today is the fifth Sunday in January, he'd have a guest speaker. <laughs> so it's true, every four months, uh, three months he'd have a guest speaker come in. And so his four sermons were this pray, go to church, love everybody, and give to missions. That was his four sermons. And if you went on the first Sunday of the month, you got one. If you went on the second Sunday of the month, you got the second one. But now he'd turn it around a little bit and he'd say different things about different missions and how to pray and all this other stuff. So it's practical advice. But after a while, you realize he's not going to go any further. Because his Christianity isn't about sacrifice here. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about bitter hearts and how to change and grow and how to mend relationships because he just didn't want to do that. But wouldn't it be just tragic if I as a pastor stayed at that level and said, this is all I need to do and God would be happy with that. Or should I work at it? Should I actually put some effort into it? I'm going to tell you the answer to that simple question. You better hope I put effort into it. You know why? Because you'll know, I'll know, and God will know. And uh, my wife will definitely know too. <laughs> She'll say, you didn't think about that one very good, did you? You didn't think all the way through. But that's, that's the difference between being something and doing something. You either are something and you act out of that, or you're doing something because it's not your identity. People who are not holy act holy. People who are holy live. See the difference? And that's the thing we forget about when we talk about God and faith. But I want to share with you out of James chapter 4, he begins to help us understand the principles of holiness and having a heart like God's heart. And he says there, submit to God. Simple enough. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a good plan. You don't want the devil resisting. He doesn't like opposition. So draw near to God. I like how the King James says it, draw nigh to God. Very poetic. And He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. <coughs> Lament and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Now, you say in verse 11, it also says, Do not speak evil of one another, brothers. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, the law was based on what you do. Holiness is based on a relationship. And I want to share in this chapter, it talks about drawing near the heart of God. It says, draw near to God. Then it says these, these crazy things. Mourn, lament, weep, wash your hands, get before God in, in tears. Now, if you're drawing near to God, why would you do that? That's Someone crying all the time doesn't seem, and washing their hands all day doesn't sound like an act of holiness. It's not talking about that. Please understand, washing your hands does not mean your hands are dirty. If you remember Pilate when he washed his hands of the blood of Jesus. When you wash your hands, you're letting go of something that no longer works. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hands means wash your hands of the old life. That you want the new life with God and you're going to weep because you didn't see it. And you're going to lament and mourn because of all the damage you've done and all the good you could have done, but you weren't living for God. But yourself. And those who do that openly admit that they think they're in control of their life. So do you see how James says, come near to the heart of God and God will come near to you. But to do so... And, and, and please understand, a lot of people want to take this verse as a, a physical, literal action. Okay, I'm going to look for God, I'm going to go where He's at, and I'm going to kneel in God's presence, and I'll be with God. Maybe it's at the altar, uh, maybe in the pew. I'll just come to church and I'll be drawing near. It's not what He's talking about. Please understand, drawing near to God is a change of direction. God, I've been going other directions. I want to come near to You now. It's a matter of choice here. God, I choose you. I choose you from my heart. I choose you from my life. I choose you from my thoughts. I'm drawing near to who you are. And as I get closer to seeing you, God, and the joy and the perfection and the love and the mercy and the grace that you are, I see how far I don't line up with who you are. Think about it. When you look at God and His holiness, all you see is how far away you are from His perfection, His glory. And if that doesn't say, God, God, I can't be in your presence. I'm not worthy. I'm not clean. I'm not holy. And God's saying, come near. Weep. Because you can't get to me without me getting to you. We miss this. It says, draw near to God. Desire God's heart. And it says, God will desire His heart for you too. It says, God will come near to you. But God cannot be in the presence of sin and us live. So we have to wash our hands of that. Say, God, I choose different. I want your heart in me. This old heart doesn't work right. God, I keep trying to 
do your law and do your will rather than love you and live out the love in the world around me. I can't seem to figure out how to do that. <laughs> and isn't that ironic? We can't figure out how to do God right. You can't do God. You can't do Christianity. Either you are filled with the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ who lives out the Christian life through you, or you're struggling trying to figure out how to do it. You're either Christian, or you're trying to be a Christian by doing Christianity. It just doesn't work. And that's a problem. And it gets worse if you read the Old Testament, Leviticus 20. Leviticus has a lot of different laws, but this one's great. I found these two verses and I think you'll appreciate it. It says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore. In other words, sanctify. Um, make yourself holy. And be holy. For I am the Lord your God. He says here, Consecrate yourselves, right? That statement, Consecrate yourselves, means sanctify yourself. Sanctify means set yourself apart. And be holy. For I am the Lord your God. Now look at the next verse. The very next verse. He says, You shall keep my statutes which are my laws and perform them. And then God says, I'm the one who sanctifies you. He just said in the verse before, Sanctify yourself. And God says, I'm the one who sanctifies you. Well, which is it, God? Do I sanctify myself or do you sanctify me? And the answer is, Yes! Yes to both. Yes, you have to desire God to sanctify you. To desire to draw close to God and repent or turn from what was keeping you from God to wash your hands and be done with it. In such saying, I'm a willing vessel if God will use me. And if you continue to live that out and follow His will for your life, God says, I will sanctify you. You can't Reholify you. <laughs> but you can say, God, use me for your purposes and you have sanctified yourself for God. But you're not sanctified. When God takes you and begins to use you, He sanctifies you. Do you see the difference? And so, in James it's saying, you can't sanctify yourself, but God will come near if you'll return back to God and let go of old stuff, and He will help you. He will lift you up. It says in James 4.10, if you will humble yourselves, He will lift you up. If you're trying to glorify yourself and lift yourself up, just not going to work. Never has, never will. Why? Because God doesn't want any of His glory going to you. And you say, wait a minute, I thought God wanted to share His glory with me. No, He wants to show you His glory. God says, I have my glory of which I will not give to another. Interesting that we forget that verse. And what's interesting is once God makes you sanctified and sanctifies you through this process, then we begin to be a little more confident that God really is doing in us what He said He is. And here's the rub. A lot of people lack what's called holy boldness. And this is, this is the tricky part in this whole understanding of how to have a heart of God. You see... He says, you can't sanctify yourself, but you can desire it. And repent 
of not desiring it. And letting God be God and God will sanctify you. And here's the thing. That's an immediate transaction. You say, what, what do you mean? Do you know when sanctification occurs? Do you think it happens the moment that you decide to live for Jesus? The moment maybe that you uh, come back to God and humble yourselves? Or is, do you think maybe there's a different time when God does that? Maybe He puts out the Holy Spirit and says, okay, poof, you're holy, you're sanctified, you're good. Let me tell you how this works. There was a man named Jesus Christ. Walked this earth, gave his life. He died on Calvary. He gave up his life for us. His life blood. That we would be forgiven. That his blood would take away the sin of the world. We would be forgiven. He rose from the dead to give life to all. After that, the work was done. You were sanctified on Calvary. You were holified on Calvary. And you say, but I wasn't even alive. Exactly. And therefore, the holy boldness says, since I wasn't there, and I didn't feel it, I didn't experience it, and I still think differently, God must not have done it yet. We live in the what is, what was, and what will be all at the same time. Right now, before I ever accept Jesus Christ, God has already sanctified me, done the sanctifying work of grace through Jesus Christ. He's done all the work. Jesus said to tell us that it is finished. It's complete. It's perfected. It's done. Holiness has been established on the cross. All it needed done. But I haven't yet moved into that relationship if I don't have Jesus Christ. I'm still Lord. However, the work's already been done to make it possible. So He's already sanctified me. I just haven't entered into the sanctifying relationship. Into the relationship of holiness. that make sense? And so, it's not yet. It was, and it will be, the moment that I step into grace and I have self-righteousness. Self-righteousness means I can do this. I can do holiness without God's help. You can't do holiness. You don't even know what it is. <laughs> can't sanctify yourself. You can only want to be and desire it. So that holy boldness, we, we, what happens is we don't think we're holy. We don't think we're worthy. God, you know, uh, I, I sinned, you know, and, and you may say I'm holy and forgiven all my sin, but God, I still remember all this stuff and I still think these thoughts and I still sin daily. And, and we don't have a holy boldness because we think we're unworthy to proclaim and live out and share it because look at me, you know, I know who I am. Do you hear that how how that sounds in God's ears? You're telling God He didn't do enough. That you're telling God that you're in control over whether or not you're worthy to say Him. I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand on that ground. I don't want to tell God He didn't know what He was doing when He told me I was holy. In Hebrews chapter 10, the verse that we're in for today, the passage, it says this, Their sins and iniquities or lawless deeds I remember no more. God has not held what you hold against you. Against you. God is not keeping track 
Hebrews 13 says, Love keeps no record wrongs. Love doesn't. We keep track of how bad we've been and all that because we don't love ourselves like God does. Now think about that for a moment. How in the world can God ever get to me if I think I've got to get to Him first when I cannot? I'm flawed material. Damaged goods from birth. I have no chance. The only choice in control I have is to have none. Because God set up the parameters that I would need Him. And that He would do the work in me. And He would do the work in you if you would let Him. And as you draw near to God, His heart will be formed in you. God doing that work. Holiness is God's effort, not yours. And that's what we miss in trying to understand it. In verse uh, 19 it says, Therefore. Now that therefore is because God doesn't remember our sin anymore. It says, Therefore we have a boldness. Um, let me try this again. Therefore, you have a boldness. I'm not hearing boldness. Anybody got a boldness? It says you have a boldness. You have boldness, but you're afraid of it because you don't think it's yours. But it says, therefore, having boldness. And the boldness is to enter the holiest place, which is the holy place of God's heart, the holy of holies. Face to face with God. To draw near there in full assurance of faith. Saying that you are welcome there. You will not be destroyed, but you will be welcomed in. To enter in to that place. With a boldness that says, He says I belong here. And I do. I don't care what my mind or my heart says. This stuff is not from God. God doesn't see any of that. What He sees is a blood-washed person who has a holiness that He's trying to put on us and fill us with His Holy Spirit and say, come into my presence. And we're, but I can't. Because I think I'm not worthy. Because I'm not holy. God says, I don't know what you're talking about. Get in here. So I can get near to you. But we don't think we have the heart of God. But God says, I gave you a new heart when you got my son inside you. You just have to trust it. And he did it by a new way, which he consecrated for us, which is that next verse. Through the veil. Consecrated. Consecrated means he has established it. He's consecrated that this works. Sometimes we consecrate ships to establish this is a worthy vessel. This is what this is saying. God has consecrated us away through Jesus Christ, through His flesh, into the holy place, God's presence. And that's good news. That's real good news. And so in verse 22, the key verse, let us draw near then with a true heart. In full assurance of faith. 
And uh, I looked up the Greek and it says just about like that says right there. Full assurance. Totally confident that our hearts are sprinkled. And that word sprinkled has the idea of a ceremonial washing. Like baptism. That we have our hearts washed from an evil conscience. And our bodies are washed with pure water. And that pure water is different than baptism. That's the water that washes away the outer. The heart sprinkled is the pureness of God. The holiness of God is now sprinkled. And But you say, but I still have evil thoughts. I still don't do things the right way. I still think opposite of what God wants. Yeah, but guess what? That doesn't stop you from being able to draw near to God. You might let it, but just because you think negatively about yourself or about your ability to be in God's presence doesn't mean God says you can't be here. Nobody is stopping you when you belong to Jesus to be with God. This is the good news. He says, as here's how, here's how you can um, paraphrase this, if you will, and, and I'll make this, I like to call it breaking it down in the common language. When you belong to Jesus Christ, when you know that He is Lord of your life, you can draw near to God with full assurance that you're welcome there. Basically all that's saying. That no matter what thoughts you have or feelings you have, God still says the things that created those are not in my record book. You've been washed clean. You have my spirit on you. I'm placing my heart on you. Come on in. And so, this is a step. Draw near. Just like James. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. He's saying draw near with a true heart. And the true heart, that true means simply by knowing that your heart desires to be with God. That's a true heart. Now that's good. And here is the part coming up in these next couple verses where people kind of try to make this do holiness thing out of this and it just doesn't work. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of the hope that we have without wavering. This is the problem for a lot of us. We go, but, but I don't know if I, I prayed it right. I don't know if God really believes me. I don't know if God really accepts me or wants me. It doesn't say to bring that with you. It says hold fast the confession of hope. It doesn't say, God, you must. It says, God, I trust. Without wavering in your trust of God, not of yourself. Here's how we kind of twist that. God, I'm not worthy to be. The guy says, I'm not basing on your credentials. I'm basing on my son's. Do you trust Jesus Christ's credentials? Do you hold to that without wavering that Jesus Christ got you away? The one who promised. Hear this. The one who promised. Right down the street. He who promised is faithful. doesn't say you who are faithful. It's the one. Jesus Christ. The Heavenly Father. He is faithful. Whether you are or not. The Scriptures even tell us let every man be a liar. God will be true. Be proved true. He is faithful. He will never be unfaithful. He treats you like you're the only one in the relationship. He's not going to go after some other God. But he's going after you. He wants you for Himself. He promised. 
And that's why you can hold fast, because He's faithful. Not because I'm faithful. Not because you're faithful. Because God is. And this is a hope that God will do what He says because He has always done so. That's faithfulness that you can trust that He's done it before. He'll do it again. And then it says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now, a lot of folks want to take this thing out of context and, and just throw this out there. Hey, you need to love everybody and, make, and do good works. When you enter into God's presence, this happens. God wants you in His presence. He's made a way. And so, whenever you're there, do you think maybe, just maybe, you feel loved? You think maybe God's stirring up your heart to say, listen, I love you. And because I love you, you can love others. And the ones that I love, you can love because I love them. And if I love them and I want to bless them, then you can bless them too in the way I want to bless them. First John says, whoever says they love God and hates his brother is a liar. Because how can you love God who you haven't seen and hate the one you have. So if you have love in your heart and you love what God loves, good works are not something you do because you want God to be pleased. You do them because you want to. It's what you do when you love somebody. Think of it like this. Suppose Somebody I don't know is walking down the street and they're hurting. And I see they're in pain. Am I going to go, you know, you know, I'd like to do something for them, but I just, you know, I don't know what to do. Uh, maybe I should, you know, call them up at a counselor or something because, you know, it looks like they're hurting. I could do that. Or, or do you think the love of God inside of God usually bless this person? God, they look like they're broken. God, and nobody in your kingdom is broken. Everybody in your kingdom is whole and restored. And they're not whole and restored right now. God, love them to me right now. And then you stop and go, Hey, I know you're having a tough day. Can I pray with you? Tell me what's going on. It's a physical thing that happens because you love God. And because you want God to bless the next person. And using you to do it. Now listen, God's doing it through you, but you're not doing it, God is. It takes away the due part of holiness to just be holy in God's presence and let God use you for His glory. And, and then this verse after that, that gets so twisted, and please understand, I'm not saying that this guy wasn't incorrect in saying go to church as one of his sermons every month, but it says not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. It says, not forsaking the assembling. People say, the Bible says you've got to go to church. And they pound this verse down in their head without ever realizing the context. Well, I heard the sermon every third Sunday of the month at that church, and a guy saying... This verse, and he had you know, about 52 sermons a year, or 12 sermons a year on this verse. Not forsaking the assembly of yourself together. And I got a thumbed in me about how much I need to be in church. 
not what it says. It doesn't say that at all. It says if you have opportunity to fellowship, do it. No, this means go to church. In assembly of yourselves together. Don't forsake. It's saying if there's an opportunity for you to gather and worship with other people who believe, by all means, you're going to want to because you want to be a part of a place where people with like heart. Think of it like this. If I go somewhere to worship God, my heart's desire is that whatever happens there, there's like-minded people there with the same hopes, same dreams, same awareness of God, and that we all want to draw closer to God and love one another and spur each other on to bless each other and do good things for others. And so, if I have the opportunity to encourage you and to come here and to do that, and I forsake it, I'm telling God I don't need to do that and I'm back in control. <laughs> if I see people praying and I say, oh, you know, they didn't invite me in, it's not my... I can draw near. You say, can I join your prayer circle? Is there anything I can add? Not forsaking that because I don't feel welcome or wanted, but looking for the opportunity where like-minded people who are after the heart of God gather. It doesn't mean if you don't go to church, you're sinning. It means if you're forsaking it because they're a place where like-minded people gather and you don't want to be there because you don't want to be convicted and challenged to change your life because God will love you too much and, and you just want to be a part of that, that's a problem. But if it's a place where you're going to feel bitter and angry afterward, it doesn't make much sense to go because that's not a part of the kingdom. But it does say, find, and it suggests, find a place where you feel safe to worship. But not only where you feel safe, where the place where you worship actively seeks the heart of God. But very practical. Always seek the heart of God in everything you do. Now you might say, well, we assemble together for um, meals. We assemble together for sports events. We assemble together for concerts. <laughs> we assemble together at movies. This is not talking about that. It's not saying, hey, Bible says I gotta go to the sports team. I gotta go to the movie because it says I can't forsake assembly with other people. Some people have said that. That's not what it says. It's not a liberty to use it against God. It's saying it's an opportunity for you to encourage. Now a lot of people say it like this, and this is what this is where it gets kind of funny, I think you'll understand this. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, I don't want to go to church because it doesn't do much for me? I don't get much out of it. You think maybe some days you're going to church to maybe bless somebody else instead of for these selfish reasons? Some people don't understand that church isn't just about you, it's about God. And God trying to get you to love other people. And the people who you don't want to be around might be the people God needs you around to help you love them. Sometimes those people are like sandpaper. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't stand that sandpaper, God. I'm not going to go there. They irritate me. 
But it's church, God, you know, as we think, God saying, you know, but I should go to church. But it, no, you don't understand, God, they don't like me there. And, and God's going, are you, why are you making this all about you? Who said you're in control of this? And there we are, back in the original question. Who's in control? Whose heart do you have beating behind the decisions you make? <coughs> Whose choices are you making? Who's doing them for you? God is not setting you up for failure. Please understand that. You were born set up for failure. He set you up for success. But my question is, do you really want God's heart in you? Do you really, really want to live for Jesus? Who's in control of that choice? Should be God. If you're surrendered. I had this question come up to me and I had to wrestle with it for two weeks, folks. Now I'm letting you. But if you're wrestling with it, here's what I want you to do this morning. It's a simple prayer. I'm going to read you the prayer and then you do with it what you will. I wrote it for you. It says, God, I want your heart in me. I truly desire to be completely remade after your Son who's being formed in me. I'm asking you to come close to me as I'm coming humbly to you on your terms. I'm surrendering. Forgive me for thinking that I could do this without you. Amen. Simple enough, isn't it? Once you start desiring the heart of God, all that other stuff will fall in place. You'll want to be where God's people are because you feel the love and the connection and you'll get revitalized. Because, get this, no one has ever resisted something that helped them. Think of that like this. And, and this is the only way I know how to say this. If someone is nice to you and says, hey, I'd like to bless you, you go, huh, <laughs> get away from me. I'd like to give you $1,000 today to spend any way you... No, 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 no. You can't understand. You know, no, no. I can't do that. I'd like to love you and encourage you and support you and lift you up and pray for you. Oh, no, 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 no. No, I can't handle that. No, no, no. Say that for somebody else. Or are you going to say, I need to be loved. I need to be heard. I need to be... Counted on, and to be able to be counted on to others. I need to know that I matter. That where I go, people know that I am there. I'm not a fly on the wall. I'm not a bump on the wall. That people see me, and they love me, regardless of anything else. 